I said before, the Psalms are the word of Christ. They are Christ's words. And when we sing, when the psalmist sings about his own righteousness, this is the voice of Christ in the Psalms. It is not the sinner's telling the Lord something that is manifestly not true of himself. He's putting his trust in one who is righteousness, who has kept the pathways of the Lord, who never strayed from his God. So that is the spirit in which we ought to sing the Psalms, knowing them to be not the word of men, but the word of God. And our righteousness of which we sing is a righteousness foreign to ourselves, imputed to us by a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom this psalm is true. Well, let us now open our Bibles to uh, our sermon text for today. The book of Titus, the letter of Paul to Titus, chapter 1. Our sermon text today is verses 5 through 9. However, I'd like to begin reading at the opening of the letter and read on through verse 9. This is the letter, of course, of Paul the Apostle, to Titus, his missionary associate. It is also written by the Spirit of God, and therefore it is helpful for the whole church in every age. Let us hear the word of God. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness upon the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, nor not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those 
who contradict. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. Now, as we uh, opened our study of Paul's letter to Titus the last time we were together, a couple of weeks ago, essentially, you may recall, we did two things. First, we laid the historical foundation for understanding this letter, and then we very briefly skimmed through Paul's greeting in which, by the self-designations slave and apostle, he shifts our focus away from himself He's just a slave. He's just a messenger. And he shifts the focus onto this wonderful hope of eternal life that's ours in Jesus Christ. It's a hope that, as the letter unfolds, turns out to be its central idea, the central theme of this letter, the hope of eternal life. The Christian's hope of eternal life is one grounded in a redemptive covenant promise that is more ancient than the world, one that's completely certain in as much as God is the one who uttered it and God cannot lie. It's a covenant promise finally made manifest in these last days of history, appearing as it does full flower in the apostolic preaching of the crucified and risen Christ. That's our hope of eternal life. What we should go on to understand today is that this eternal life, defined for us in John 17, 3, as knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, this life is something that we experience and work through together in community with others of a like precious faith. St. Augustine, Christian bishop of North Africa, at the turn of the 5th century A.D., said, He cannot have God for his Father, who will not have the Church for his Mother. Do you see Augustine's point? You may, in fact, be reborn by the Holy Spirit through your private reading of the Bible, or as you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached on the radio in the privacy of your home or your car, or in any number of private circumstances, the Spirit can convert you that way. After all, the wind blows where it wishes. And so it is with the Spirit. He isn't constrained to use great public crusades or evangelistic tent meetings to save us. He isn't constrained to use the formal pulpit ministry at all in bringing the elect to Christ. He moves within our circumstances however he wishes to break our flinty, perverse, natural hearts and exchange them instead for new ones. Hearts of flesh that now live no longer for self, but for Christ. He can do that in a private setting. But with this new life, if it's genuine, with this new life comes a new thirst for fellowship with others 
of like mind and like experience. The highways to Zion are in your heart now. You long to find your place and function within the glorious body of Christ. And you begin to experience that wonderful surge of emotion that David experienced in that psalm we began with today, Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let our feet not stay at home. Are the people of God assembling somewhere to worship, to pray, to enjoy one another? Then Let's be with them. Let's be among them. Let our feet now stand within your gates, O Jerusalem. What I'm saying is that this eternal life is now lived out day by day within families and congregations. We don't live it out in isolation from others, but with others who are likewise chosen of God. And beloved, this is no small matter. This is no small matter. It's no inconsequential detail amid the rugged individualism of our Western culture. I need to spend a little time on this, the corporate nature of our eternal life. Christ died for a church, not for isolated individuals, but for a church, for his bride. If you want to dissolve something, say you want to dissolve a lump of sugar in your tea, the quickest way you can dissolve something is to crush the lump down into its individual granules first, thus increasing the surface area and increasing the speed of its dissolution. It's the same way with the church. And the adversary of our souls is never happier than when he is sowing strife among his brethren, among the brethren, making it more pleasant for the brethren to stay home and get our religion from the TV or from the radio and not have to bother with all these people and their unsanctified rough edges. But dear friends, those residual rough edges on the saints, those are the very means by which he designs to smooth and sanctify you. I won't have the rough edges on, of my character, I won't have them knocked off until you are there to knock them off for me, to try my patience, to stretch my compassion, to bring me out of myself and my own little world and show me the wider world of Christian fellowship. It's mutual. We knock the rough edges off one another. Did the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ say, Beloved, let us stay away from one another? Of course not. We live this life, this glorious eternal life, together in the church. And as the church. 
All of which brings us to the question before us today, in our passage today. Who's going to watch over Christ's church? Who keeps the flock of Jesus Christ grazing and growing together in peace? In a world of circling wolves who for their own self-interests want to divide and conquer, divide and devour one lamb of the church at a time. Paul says in verse 1 that he's interested in the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that blossoms into godly living. So when the apostle's not here with us in the flesh, and he's not, he's in heaven, Paul is in heaven today, when he's away from us, who determines what's taught and what's not? who sets the example for others to follow. It's such an important matter that the selection and appointment of these men is supposed to be the main focus of Titus's mission on Crete. This is what I want you to do. This is why I left you there on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean, Titus. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city, as I directed you. This church, of which the Holy Spirit makes you a functioning member, this church is both an organism and an organization. It is both. The church is both. It has life. It also has structure and leadership. And hopefully it won't take much convincing to show you how important it is that we do have this structure and leadership. Teams, soccer season has started, so some of us are thinking teams now. Teams have captains. Armies have officers. Businesses have management. Walk into any McDonald's. And what do you see? Hopefully, when you walk into a McDonald's, you won't see a bunch of minimum wage earners sitting around a table arguing about how to make a hamburger. Or what should be on the menu, or whether they really ought to be out selling something else altogether. Selling cars, or pencils, or life insurance, or something else. No, hopefully, when you walk into a McDonald's, you're going to find a focused team of workers tailored to the task of serving a clientele with a menu of items and prices determined in advance before you ever walk through the door. Who made those decisions? Not the young guy dutifully bussing tables and mopping the floors. He has an important job, but it's not determining what's going to be on the menu. In a similar way, Christ has so ordered the church as to accomplish its mission successfully, unitedly, and with as little friction and confusion of rules as possible. And that mission, 
That mission of the church is offering to the world the crucified and risen Savior according to the scriptures. That's our mission. It's what we do. So have it your way is a slogan that doesn't work in the church. You want chopped onions on your vanilla cone? You want bacon on your fish sandwich? Then go to the burger joint across the street. You want the power of positive thinking? You want justification by the works of your own hands? Then you'll have to find another place. Because we preach Christ and him crucified. There is nothing else on the menu here. Who's going to guarantee this? That the church doesn't wander off in some other direction. Who's going to guarantee it? Who guarantees that the doctrine remains true to the whole counsel of God? Who guarantees that everyone on the team understands his or her own role in the kingdom of God and that each member remains safe and satisfied in Christ alone? Their men, who are known equally well in the scripture as elders, call that for their maturity, or overseers, or bishops, or shepherds, or pastor teachers for their function within the body of Christ. All of these terms that I just used are equivalent, interchangeable Terms that the New Testament uses, each of them emphasizing a slightly different facet of the one office. Here in Titus, Paul calls them elders, presbyteroi, in verse 5, and then he calls each one individually an overseer, episkopos, in verse 7. Some of these men give special attention to and legitimately make their living by preaching the word. Some exercise other gifts of the Holy Spirit. Whatever we call these men at any given moment, what credentials do they bring to this work of overseeing the faith, knowledge, and godly living of God's elect? Whatever else you may remember from this sermon, dear friends, remember this. Write it in capital letters in the margin of your Bible if you do that, or burn it at least into the gray matter between your ears. Just two words. Character first. Character first. Doctrine is important, but character first. The man we call to be our pastor is without a doubt going to be well-educated. He is. He'll have degrees from college and seminary, at least. He'll have read over the course of years of study thousands and thousands of pages 
getting himself a broad liberal education and then specializing in a biblical theological one. The man we call to be our pastor is going to know his Greek. He's going to know his Hebrew. He may know Aramaic. He may know some Latin. He'll be able to outline for you the whole interconnected plan of redemption. He'll be well acquainted with perhaps a master of everything from infralapsarianism to parliamentary procedure. And all of that's fine and dandy. But put it on the back burner for now. Here's what the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ names as the first credential of an elder. He must be above reproach. Paul lists character traits first. Before getting to the matter of doctrinal prowess down at the bottom of the list in verse 9. Do you see the significance of this? In verse 11, he'll be getting down to the business at hand there in Crete. Here's why you need these men. It's to silence the rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers who plagued the church then and who plagued the church today. Unprincipled men. You can't win an argument of words against unprincipled men. Because unprincipled men will always be right in their own eyes. And words alone don't reach them. Words alone don't change the minds of unprincipled men. So we teach those we can teach. But we have to understand that, what, that we're going to run across people, even in the church, who want to teach without first having been taught. And worse even than that, worse even than being untaught, men who are unteachable. Words alone don't reach them. Men and women whose foremost goal is to express themselves, whose message is the gospel of their own unsubstantiated opinions. And it is not the truth spoken, but the truth lived. It is the truth lived that undercuts and ultimately silences men like that and women like that. Let the man we call to be our pastor be above reproach as God's steward of the grace of life. Now, the list of character traits in verses 6 to 8 also falls into two parts, which we might call the objective and the subjective. Or if you prefer, the screening criteria and the comparison criteria. The first of these two categories of selection criteria consist of three binary 
yes or no questions. If the answer isn't yes to all three of these questions, Titus, you needn't bother go on with the interview of them. Look elsewhere for your man if they don't satisfy these three things. The objective screening criteria for elders are these. One, is this man you're considering the husband of one wife? Yes or no? Two, does this man have faithful children? Three, is this man free of charges of reckless living or insubordination? Now, there are a couple of things worth noting here. First, the qualifications of an elder clearly go beyond those of other faithful Christian men. You are not a less faithful Christian man simply because you happen to be single or because you haven't had the opportunity or the ability to raise believing children. You aren't a less faithful Christian man if others have accused you of things falsely. Look at Job in the Old Testament. Or Noah, actually you can forget about Job. Look at our Lord Jesus Christ himself. By his enemies, labeled falsely, a wine-bibber labeled falsely a glutton. His sweet name, the name of Christ, is a byword to those who want to bring him down and they don't have to have truth on their side because they're unprincipled men. This man eats with tax collectors and sinners and ultimately Jesus is condemned and crucified on the strength of a lie. So not meeting these particular credentials doesn't make you a less faithful follower of Jesus Christ, but there's a distinction. And the work of elder, whether teaching or ruling, the work of elder is a sore trial under the best of circumstances. It is. Probably half the church that this man is called upon to teach and lead for Christ, half the church, roughly, is going to be female. And so there are good, solid, practical reasons. He'll want to have a loving, supportive helper by his side as he ministers to the whole congregation. The congregation, for its part, has the right to expect that this man can teach and govern his own household and lead them to faith in Christ before he attempts that same supernatural feat on the larger congregation. Does he have trouble representing Christ under his own roof? Then why should we think He can represent Christ in the much larger congregation. 
Now certainly, let's accept such a man as a brother in the Lord. Let's help and love and support him. Let's protect his reputation. But let's not put the added burden upon him of asking him to be our pastor as well. Not if he doesn't have the support and the track record that he needs. There's at least one additional thing we should understand about these screening criteria. It has to do with criterion two. We should notice that the word for children in verse six, it's the very same word that Paul uses for Titus himself in verse four, where he calls Titus his true child in a common faith. Now, why is this worth our notice? Because Titus clearly isn't Paul's biological child. Not all a Christian man's children are his biological children. Who, after all, are the children of Abraham? Not those according to the flesh, but those of Abraham's faith. We are children of Abraham. The practical implication, as we call our next pastor, is this. Maybe you have a married man without biological children. Children who share his genes, his DNA. Or maybe he has biological children who, despite his faithful Christian training and example in the home over the years, children who are currently in rebellion against him and what he represents. Does that necessarily disqualify him from consideration? Maybe in such a case we can apply the principle of Deuteronomy 24.16 that tells us fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Proverbs 20 verse 6, or 7 rather, gives us half the picture of growing up in a covenant home. Proverbs 20, verse 7. It gives us half the picture of growing up in the covenant home, the half that we call privilege. It is a privilege to grow up in a covenant home. A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. They're blessed, they're privileged, because they have a Christian father, a godly father. But four verses later in that same chapter, Proverbs 20, we get the other half, the other side of it, the half that we call the covenant child's responsibility. It is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself if his conduct is right and pure. The congregation has to be able to live alongside the man's wife and the man's children, but your main business, our main business, is to focus on the faithfulness of the man. It's therefore a man's faithfulness in presenting and living the gospel that qualifies him 
even more than the results under his own roof. He will have children in the faith, to be sure. Children who believe. Some of them may actually live at his address. And blessed indeed are they who do. In verse 7, Paul moves from the binary vote him up or vote him down qualifications to the more subjective comparative qualifications. Qualifications in which you will exercise some personal judgment as you consider the man. If you ask me whether Joe Schmo is married or not, I can tell you with reasonable certainty. He is or he isn't. Not a question that admits of degrees. Ask me whether he has children who believe or whether he's under charges, and with a little asking around, the matter can be determined as an absolute yes or an absolute no. But now Titus's task on the island of Crete, Titus's task and ours as well, as we call a man to be our pastor, now the task becomes a little harder. Because you have to ask yourself comparative questions about this man that you're considering, questions that do admit of degrees. Is this man you're considering calling as your next pastor, your teaching elder, is he self-willed? Some may think he is. Others may think, no, he's not self-willed, but he is assertive. And maybe assertiveness is a good thing. Is he quick-tempered? Some of you may think, yes, Joe Schmo is quick-tempered. So it doesn't matter that he's married to one wife, has children who believe, and he's not under charges of reckless living. You'll vote him down anyway, because you think he's quick-tempered. <coughs> Someone else in the congregation may interpret his persona as forceful, and maybe forceful is a good thing. All that I'm saying here is that once a man has passed the, biblicals, the Bible's screening criteria for church office, you, the congregation, have room for some frank and charitable discussion of his suitability for us. We'll be the ones electing him, and so on us falls the burden of evaluating his character. Here's the standard by which you will measure him. First, Paul repeats that whoever he is, if he wants to be an overseer of the church, he must be above all, above or beyond reproach. He says so in verse 6. He says so again in verse 7. It's the very same word he uses in both those verses. And then he further defines this blamelessness, this irreproachability, in a string of five negatives. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, 
not a drunkard, not a violent man, not greedy for material gain. Five negatives. Have you ever been accused of being negative? I'd love to be accused of being negative as long as this is what all my negativity looks like. Not these things. Isn't it interesting how by Paul's telling us all these things that the elder is not to be, we begin to get a mental picture of the kind of man he is. He's a man in control of himself. He's got a mature grip on his passions, a mature grip on his tongue, a mature grip on his appetites. Even by the description of what he is not, he begins to take on the very distinct likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Put positively, the five negatives look like this. He puts the best interests of others ahead of his own. He'll turn the other cheek before ever thinking of retaliation for any slight against him, real or imagined. As for addictions, the Greek word here means he's not always lingering Beside his wine, paroinos, he's not always lingering beside his wine. Whatever his use of God's good gifts or his voluntary abstinence from them, he neither makes the use of nor the abstinence from wine his master. He's a man whose strength is his gentleness, whose gentleness is his strength, and whose treasure is in heaven. This man has the habit of hospitality. The word here at the beginning of verse 8 is a compound of two words, meaning that he's a friend of strangers. He's a friend of strangers. Doesn't that expand your understanding of hospitality? He's not just a friend of his friends because everyone's a friend of his own friends. Your pastor needs to be a friend to those who aren't his friends. He needs to be a friend to foreigners, a friend to strangers, a friend to those who are far from home. Is there a burden to be borne when you are a friend to people who just show up on your doorstep? Of course there is. Is it a burden to the wife and children of those who live with him? A burden to keep a place ready for the unexpected visitor? It is absolutely a burden on them as well. So is your candidate, whoever he may be, Is he ready to take on that responsibility? And is his wife and are his children? It might be worth exploring in our pastoral interviews. He loves what is good. 
He's sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. All these qualities round out the picture of the man we'll want to call to be our next pastor. Now we'll consider the matter of his doctrinal skills the next time we're together. One final question on verses 5 through 8, and we'll be done for today. This is a question you may possibly have been turning over in your mind over the last half hour or so. The question is this. Do men like this really exist? And the Bible's answer consists in some bad news and some good news. The bad news is that the answer is no. At least a qualified no. Men who fit this description don't exist in nature. And those who, living in a state of grace, have progressed to the point of approaching this description tend to be so far along in life that they're about ready to be in heaven tomorrow or the day after. No wonder they're called presbyters, old men. Presbyterianism is government by old men. Men who are pretty far along. Men who are soon ready to die. So Paul's question to the Corinthians is applicable here. Who is sufficient for these things? Who's adequate to carry the fragrance of Christ both to the lost And to the saved, who offers in word and deed such a sweet savor of life as this? That's the bad news. The good news is that Christ promised to build his church and that he's using even broken clay vessels to do it. He is using weak men. He's using men with foibles and frailties and weird little mannerisms and bad teeth and forgetfulness and all manner of other infirmities. Into these clay jars, these little men, Christ pours the riches of his heavenly grace, the treasures of his gospel, and it's the riches inside that count. It's the riches inside that we're after. And so as our heavenly father makes his will for a pastor clear to us over the coming weeks and months, I urge you, accept the brother, not only for who he is, Accept him for the one who works mightily within him for the love of Jesus Christ and the love of his church. Amen. Let us pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the great shepherd of the sheep. And we thank you that at your ascension, you gave gifts to men. Not only for that generation, but for every generation until you return. We thank you for the men whom you have gifted to the church. We ask that you would bless us as a congregation of your people as we search for the men of your appointment for us to be our pastor, to lead us, to comfort us, to open your word to us, to teach us. We pray for that man, for his family, and we pray for that day that it might be soon when he comes and takes up the mantle of our pastor-teacher. Grant these things, we pray, for the safety and security of Zion, your church, and for your own greater glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.